and what's going on everyone welcome to the program it is not your average boston sports podcast i am your host garrett hayden as always you can listen to the podcast on apple Podcasts and on spotify and you can follow our social pages on twitter and on facebook for the latest updates uh, coming to you guys on this monday morning episode 246 uh, if you did not get a chance to listen to uh, last week's uh, you know, Guest Friday, whatever you want to call it last week, uh, as I broke down the Patriots' first-round draft pick. Um, you can go listen to that if you'd like. Posted that up on Friday before rounds two and three, so it'd be great if you guys could go listen to that and then give you know, a rating or whatever you do on Spotify. I think it's only Apple Podcasts that you get a rating on, but I would greatly appreciate that. Any comments um, or anything that uh, you'd like to hear me talk more about, you know, just let me know, and we'll do that this week for Guest Friday. We got a new guest coming to talk about the Patriots draft class. We will be talking about the draft class today, but we'll probably be going more in-depth uh, later this week, so really looking forward to that. Um, you know, it's uh, definitely, on, on some levels, uh, being a Boston sports fan, it was... Uh, not the best weekend, uh, you could say. I think in terms of the uh, thinking about the local hockey team that, you know, unfortunately, season came to an end last night. The uh, Bruins with uh, really kind of just a shocking, uh, disappointing first-round loss to uh, the Florida Panthers. Bruins lose um, in overtime last night in Game 7. And, you know, it just um, it's just disappointing. You know, that's really all the... Um, the thing that I can muster right now, you know, it's still very fresh and I'm sure that this, you know, loss is going to sting for a really long time. I think, you know, this is the way that I don't think anyone really saw this season, storybook season, whatever you want to call it. I don't think that anyone thought that this was going to be a possible end for this team, you know, but I think just thinking about where we were a week ago, with the Bruins having won both games in Florida, you know, you felt really good that they could close out the game um, in game five. But I think that, you know, there's a lot of things that you can point to for why this team lost control of the series, you know, didn't get the requisite goaltending that you needed in games five and six, you know, the Bruins maybe didn't do the best job of, you know, integrating Bergeron back into the lineup. You know, we heard that, uh, apparently, he'd been playing with a herniated disc, which, you know, is a very serious, serious injury. Now, you know, Patrice has played through a lot of injuries before, but, you know, I think that maybe that's what the injury was, you know, that he had suffered at some point toward the end of the regular season, missed the first four games, and then, you know, was put back into the lineup for game five. You know, and I think Jim Montgomery said maybe it wasn't the best decision to have him not playing with, with Marchand right out of the gate, you know, and perhaps they could have done that differently. But hindsight's twenty twenty. You know, it's very easy to look back and say, oh, we should have done things a certain way. But it's like, you know, Patrice had missed the first four games of the series. And it's like, yeah, you can easily say, like, yeah, it's obvious. Why wouldn't she put him with Marchand? But it's like, it's hard to integrate someone after they had missed time and after they had been hurt and it's just like integrating guys into the lineup is harder than people think you know and I think that that 
definitely played into it. You know, Krejci not being available for a couple games, the team said that the team had to put different lines together. And I think that, you know, there were certain guys that just didn't respond to playoff hockey the way that we thought that they would. And I think, you know, someone like Campus Lindholm, I think, didn't have a good series. And I think that, you know, from start to finish his entire regular season, he was probably their best defenseman. And I think, you know, should have had consideration for the Norris Trophy. You know, but for some reason, it just, just his game never really found its footing. You know, and it just didn't look like he was comfortable at all. You know, I think there were a couple of other guys defensively that didn't look comfortable. And I think the Bruins didn't stand up well enough to Florida's aggressive forecheck. And I think that, you know, the guys that were the defensemen didn't have a good series. And, you know, defensively got hemmed in their own end. And it kind of seemed like that was the, you know, underlying theme at the Bruins' struggles over the last three games that, you know, Florida was just, were hounds on the puck. And the Bruins, you know, it took them so much to get the puck out of the zone. And, you know, it just good but not good enough, I think, was this team's performance in this in this series that they never really found their game. You know, I think, yes, they won some games. Yeah, you could probably say games three and four, they were good, but it's like they never really, you know, got going. And I think that there definitely needs to be something, there needs, there is something to be said for the fact that the Bruins had a couple of different guys coming back from, you know, serious injuries right at the end of the regular season and into the playoffs. And it's just, it's very difficult to integrate guys back into the lineup after they had been out and the Bruins made some, you know, lineup decisions that maybe you can point at and say, maybe they should have done things a different way, but it's like, that should not affect the way that they were playing and the way that they were careless with the puck and oftentimes trying to do too much you know yes certainly you could say that maybe that's part of a, a personnel issue but it's like I think that you never really saw much of this during the regular season of guys just being careless and you know the team just kind of stuck just stuck in a rut and stuck in a rut of not being able to get pucks out of the zone cleanly. And, you know, to Florida's credit, they made the Bruins pay for it. You know, I think that there probably were other teams that, you know, let's say the Bruins, for example, let's say that they, you know, played Buffalo, who just missed the playoffs by like a point or two. You know, if the Bruins got into the playoffs and were careless with the puck and kind of were just okay, that would have been good enough to beat that team, I think. You know, that I think... They could have won, won the series in five games, but it wouldn't have been, you know, the best hockey. But it's like Florida's really good. You know, there are a lot of guys on that team that were on the President's Trophy winning team last year. You know, this is not a pushover team. And I think a lot of us thought that they were, including myself. I didn't think that they really were up to the task defensively. You could argue that maybe they weren't. And the Bruins really only lost this series because... The defensemen were, you know, too soft on pucks, you know, couldn't get pucks out of the zone when they needed to and made too many self-inflicted mistakes and the goaltending wasn't nearly where it needed to be. 
I don't really think that there was much wrong with the forward group's production in this series. You know, Pasternak was good in this series, yeah. Didn't have a couple of, had a couple of not-so-good games, but for the most part, he was good in this series. Marshand was really good. Bertuzzi was arguably your best player this entire series. You know, you had plenty of offensive guys who performed, but it really came down to the defense and the goaltending, and I think maybe it's fair to wonder that Olmark was playing through something, but it just really... It wasn't good enough from him over the last couple of games, and the Bruins kind of their hand was forced to go to Swayman in Game 7. Now, I don't think he was perfect, but I don't think he was bad either. You know, I think you look at some of those goals that Florida scored were kind of, again, self-inflicted mistakes, and, you know, I thought he played all right to get the win in Game 7, but clearly, you know, didn't make enough saves, but... You know, I think it just is it's just disappointing, you know, I think because they built this roster in such a way that really thought that there really wasn't a weakness on this team. And I think the kind of depressing thing is they kind of only have themselves to blame. You know, there's not really an outside thing that you can blame. You know, to Florida's credit, again, they played a great series. They you know, never died, never, never wavered. You know, they were a team that believed. And I think even going down 3-1 and going into overtime in game five, it was like they never really, you know, feared anything. And I think that they deserve a lot of credit. And I think for whatever reason, you know, the Bruins didn't quite bring that level of you know, desperation in some of these games. And I think, you know, the defense been too many mistakes and they couldn't get big saves at key moments that they were able to pretty much get the entire season. Now, if you want to sit here and say, yeah, they probably should have played Swayman in more games, you know, that's fair. But I think, again, you know, it's, it's, it's easy to sit here and say they should have done things a certain way. You know, but it's like, who knows if the outcome would have been different. You know, so it's just, yeah, it's it's hard. I think it's kind of hard to explain, you know, how this team just kind of lost control of the moment, lost control of the series, and now they have to, you know, sit and deal with the sting of this loss for months and, you know, probably for years because I think the trajectory of this team you know, is really, or not trajectory, but like the, the outlook of this team is going to change in the next, over the next couple of years. And I think we all thought that, okay, here's their last chance to really do something special. And, you know, not to say that they're going to be bad because who knows what happens after the season, who knows what happens in the off season, but, you know, really, truly this felt like their best chance um, to win a cup. But, you know, with the way that they played so poorly, you know, it's, Maybe it's fair to wonder that, you know, they overachieved and they won too many games, not, not won too many games, I shouldn't say it like that, but like, you wonder if the 65 wins and a league record in points, was that really indicative of their team or was it something else? Did they just happen to, I don't want to say get lucky because it's like, 
you know, they had only lost three games in a row one time during the regular season. And it's like, if you're winning games like that at that rate, you are obviously good. But I think it's fair to wonder if, you know, were they really as good as the record said that they were? You know, I happen to believe that they were, and I happen to believe that this is the Stanley Cup playoffs. There's no such thing as a team that's just going to lie down in front of you. You know, and maybe the opponent was not a good thing, and the Bruins played a team that was supremely talented and, you know, got them at a time that, you know, it worked out for Florida. So, you know, who knows? I just, we can go back and forth and have this debate about if it's the biggest choke job in Boston sports or whatever. I'm not going to have that conversation because, you know, it's just like that's not... It's not really what we do on this podcast. You know, we're not a, um, we're not a doom and gloom podcast. You know, that's not something that I ever want to be known for. So, you know, I'm not going to sit here and, you know, talk about something that's going to, you know, spark a huge debate on Twitter. It's just not worth it. You know, when it's just, look, I think it's, the, the crazy thing about this is it's kind of just, it's the Stanley Cup playoffs. It's the nature of the beast. And, you know, crazy things happen. Crazy things happen in sports. And, you know, I think oftentimes we all think that something is going to go a certain way. And, you know, that's the beauty of sports. Never goes the way that you think. Never goes necessarily the way that you want it to. And I think, you know, yeah, sure, the Bruins had this great regular season, but or, you know, had a disappointing end of the season, but it still was a fun season. You know, anyone trying to tell you that it's that it hasn't been fun is lying. You know, I think that it's been a it's been a fun group to follow. It's been a fun group that, you know, gen genuinely, you know, fought for each other and loved each other and appreciated each other. And it's like you could see that at the end of the game with you know, some of those guys being close to tears or in tears because they think this team meant so much to them. Um, and I think, yeah, it's easy to assign blame to certain people, but, you know, I don't, I don't know. You know, it's, it's a tough thing because it's a shocking tough loss. But, you know, at the same time, I think that the guys wanted to do this for each other and, you know, sometimes... Sometimes you just come up short, you know, and it's nowhere close to, I think, where anyone thought this team would go out if they were going to. But it's just, you know, end of the day, it is what it is. And there's not really anything that we can do. You know, we sit here, root for the teams. We sit here and, you know, for whoever, anyone that covers the team, all we really can do is watch. You know, we're not privy to that locker room and those guys in there. And I think that it's easy to sit on Twitter and get upset at certain guys and say, this guy didn't do something well or whatever, but it's like, you know, the guys in that room love and respect and care for each other. And that's what it is, no matter what happens, you know, and everyone of course has a right to be upset. Everyone has a right you know, to be angry that this team went out the way that it did. But, 
you know, at the end of the day, I think that we all can appreciate the year that they had and, you know, appreciate that, you know, Pergeron and Krejci, it could be it for them, you know, and it might be ushering in a new era of Bruins hockey that, you know, it could be it for them. And I think that for a lot of us watching the end of that game, it was hard not to get emotional. I think just you consider what those two guys have done for the organization and the team and the fans, you know, like they mean so much to us. And so I think it's just, it's tough because I think we all wanted to win for them and you can bet that everyone in that room wanted to win for them. You know, they said it often. They say all these great things about what great people Bergeron and Krejci are. And I think, you know, it might not be necessarily fair to say that, you know, they deserved better. You know, I feel like, I feel weird when people say something like that because it, I don't know, it, it, it kind of means like to me, you know, takes away from kind of loses, when is a team, loses a team, you know. I don't think that, you know, Bergeron and Krejci are sitting in that locker room last night and, you know, getting upset or disappointed about, like, what other guys did or didn't do. You know, it's like, that's the that's been the great thing about this leadership culture, that no one is bigger than another person. And it's all, everyone's on the same level playing field. Everyone's the same. You know, it's win as a team, loses a team. And, you know, that's kind of how it is. So, you know, I could sit here and break down more of this series, but kind of just doesn't seem like it's necessary to, you know, beat a dead horse about what happened. Um, you know, really the next thing we can do is look at the off season because it really... Um, is going to be challenging because with the, you know, overage penalties that are going to come in uh, with Bergeron and David Krejci, you know, playing for a certain amount of money, but, you know, earning those performance bonuses that will carry over to next season. The Bruins, you know, just taking a look at cap friendly at the moment, it's 10 and a half or it's 10.5 million in cap space, but you know, 4.5 million of that is going to be from the, you know, performance bonuses of Krejci and Bergeron. So, you know, take looking at that math, that's $6 million to work with. When you look at some of the free agents that they have, Jeremy Swayman, you know, Orlov, Connor Clifton, Trent Frederick, you know, Tyler Bertuzzi, you know, and then depending on what Bergeron and Krejci decide, you know, I personally happen to think that David Krejci is retiring. Don't know what Bergeron's going to decide. Really think it could be anything. Based on the way that he left the ice last night, I think that he's done. But who knows? So it's like looking at the amount of money they have, you know, to spend on all these free agents that are key. You know, I think in particular, Bertuzzi, Frederick, and Jeremy Swayman are the most important. Six million dollars, I don't think is quite enough to sign all three of those guys. So I do think that there is going to be salary that gets moved out. You know, I think that it's a possibility that Forbert gets moved, possibility that Mike Riley gets moved. I think that it's 
very, very likely for Mike Riley. You know, Forbert could get moved. Matt Grizzlick could possibly get moved as both of those guys are going to have one year left on their contract going into next season. So, you know, that's going to be tough decisions. And I think, you know, Orlov, unless he takes a serious, you know, you know, pay reduction from what reportedly he wants, I can't see him returning. You know, Connor Clifton, I don't know if I see him returning because I think he played really well this season, but was one of those defensemen that really didn't have a good playoff run. So I really could go back and forth on him um, in terms of whether he's going to return. You know, and then in terms of the free agents, you know, Felino and Nosek, I kind of can't see them returning. Hathaway, I'd be surprised. Um, and then, you know, you deal with Bergeron and Krejci. So, you know, I think personally there is... You know, there might be another difficult roster decision that you might have to make, you know, and whether that's dealing someone like Taylor Hall, I think that that's a possibility um, that I think some people might need to be open to because, you know, you really need to keep Tyler Bertuzzi. There's really, it's a, it's a non-starter for me to let him go. I think that he's performed way too well here in Boston to just kind of let him go, so... You know, if Taylor Hall has to be a cap casualty for Tyler Bertuzzi, so be it. You know, I think that Halsey had a great playoff run. He had a really good series against Florida. But I think, you know, just considering the $6 million that he makes, it might be too high to keep him on the team. Some people would say maybe Charlie Coyle, but if you're going to lose Bergeron and Krejci, potentially you need as many centers on the roster. And so if you lose... Bergeron and Krejci, the only centers that you have under contract, the only center that you have under contract is Charlie Coyle. So, or I'm sorry, the only other one other than Coyle is uh, Pavel Saka. So I think, you know, it is important to keep Coyle. Um, so I think in terms of the rest of it, you know, you got Pasternak, obviously, you got Saka with his new deal, you know, you got McAvoy, Lindholm, and Carlo, you know, all signed long-term. You know, Olmark's got two, is going to have two years left on his deal. You know, Swayman will certainly get a new deal this summer. So, you know, it's a lot of decisions that this team has to make. But I think, you know, I do think that some of those defensemen are probably going to get moved and Hall probably will get moved. And I think that the Bruins may want to you know, try to get some draft picks back because this is a team that, you know, spent a lot of its draft picks to try to go win a championship this year. And obviously they came up short. So, you know, it could be a possibility that the Bruins try to move some of those guys that I mentioned to try to see if they can, you know, offload some salary, but try to pick up some draft picks, try to recoup some of the picks that you lost at the trade deadline. So, you know, it's, it, it sucks, you guys. I'm not going to lie. It uh, was definitely not the ending that any of us really saw coming. Um, but, you know, it is what it is. And at the end of the day, that's the beauty of sports. You know, it's it's the, the ultimate highest of the highs. 
and the ultimate lowest of the lows. And, you know, I will try to, you know, I, I thought about coming on here and trying to make everyone feel better, but, you know, it's just, maybe it's just not possible today. Um, but, you know, I think that plenty of brewing stuff will come out in the next couple of weeks. And as we get closer to, you know, draft time and free agency, it'll be interesting to see what decisions uh, this team makes. So I think we're going to move on and talk about the Celtics who do have a playoff series uh, that will start tonight against the Philadelphia 76ers. The Celtics uh, could not close out the Hawks in five games last week, but they were able to close it out in six, beating the Hawks 128-120 to in game six in Atlanta. A really good kind of closeout game for the Celtics as, you know, they came out Firing came out really well, really good in that first half in game six, and then closed the game almost the sim- almost a similar way that they, you know, had opened the game with some great defense and good shot making and some really good decisions. So it's good to have this team move on, you know, and I think there could be something to be said for this team having a hard time in the first round that maybe it's a good thing that it kind of is a wake-up call to be like the playoffs are not going to be easy. And, you know, I think that anytime you have a team that you've kind of historically had some struggles against, you know, the playoff series is going to be more challenging than you think. You know, this is a Hawks team that, yes, is not necessarily all that talented or all that good, but you know, I think they've given the Celtics issues in the past, and I think Trey Young in particular, you know, when he's on and he's making his shots, he's really, really hard to defend against. And I think some people kind of take his skill for granted, if that makes sense, where it's like people honest don't think he's really that good, but then it's like he can make some shots and make big-time shots and, you know, will his team to win. And I think that maybe people around here kind of underestimated that team and didn't expect that they were going to put up a fight. But, you know, Trey Young's a player where he never backs down from a fight. He never has his entire career. So I think that, yes, obviously we all wanted the Celtics to win that game five, you know, close out the series and all. But, you know, I think... Sometimes it just happens that a player has a ridiculous performance, and that's really what happened. You know, it's not to excuse the Celtics in the way that they, you know, again, lost a fourth-quarter lead and started playing the score and playing the clock down the stretch, which, to be honest, still scares me because, you know, that to me, you know, is kind of like they haven't learned their lesson from last year. You know, you'd hope that just you know, a blip on the radar screen and the Celtics, you know, don't have a loss like that the rest of the playoffs. But I think there's always a concern that this team can just be, you know, susceptible to losing focus and, you know, playing the clock, playing the score and not playing the game, you know. So it's good to see that they did bounce back in game six 
on the road, you know, and get a win. Uh, but I think that, you know, thinking about this when it was close, you know, game was tied with a couple minutes to go and the Celtics, you know, responded, but they're going to have to play in some tougher environments than Atlanta, you know, even though Atlanta's, it was a pretty loud place for some of those games down there, uh, this, that series, but they're going to have to play in tougher environments. They're going to have to play in Philly. You know, they may have to play in New York, you know, we'll see how that Knicks and Heat series goes, but yes, the Celtics certainly caught a break with the Heat beating the Bucks, but that's not to say that this run is going to be any easier or the team shouldn't think that it's going to get any easier. You know, people that write about the team and cover the team, you know, may think that it's easier, but this team's mentality should not be that it's going to be easy the rest of the way. The mentality should be that it's going to indeed get harder. Now, the kind of difficult part about this Sixer series that starts tonight at the Garden is Joel Embiid's health. You know, seems like he is doubtful to start the series. Won't play tonight and probably won't play game two, I think is what I understand. So I think that doesn't matter really for the Celtics where it's like it shouldn't matter how you attack the game. I mean, maybe it does change kind of what you do schematically in terms of like what you try to do defensively or offensively. If Embiid's not in the game, you know, you may have to change some things, but it shouldn't change their mentality. I think that they need to stay aggressive and need to stay being that team that attacks the paint, you know, first and foremost, attacks the paint, gets easy looks, and then works to the outside, gets their open threes, and works works that way. So I'm going to be very curious what the Sixers look like offensively, because honestly, they have played well without Embiid at times this year. So it's going to be interesting to see how Tobias Harris plays, you know, how aggressive he's going to be looking for his shot in his offense. You know, how does it change? How does it change Harden's game? Because it is interesting because he didn't necessarily have the best offensive series against the Nets when the Sixers swept. It kind of was a Embiid series where he kind of took over most of those games you know, did have a good closeout game when they swept, but, you know, it's going to be interesting to see how Harden plays without Embiid, because I think that he, the majority of his assists this season were on Embiid baskets, some like crazy percentage. So how does that change the way that they play offense? I think that certainly it does change things defensively for the Celtics, but it's not really... You know, what they do schematically is not something that really affects me because I think that when they play, it's all about mindset and it's not really about any X's and O's thing. It's kind of just how you decide to attack the game. And it is kind of dangerous, you know, that we still have this conversation about this game because I think at times they kind of lack a, a killer instinct, if you will, um, that I think when they get into games where they're, you know, up by 10 points with, you know, four or five minutes to go, they kind of tend to play the score. And I think that that's something that cannot happen. You know, if they're going to win a championship, they can't do that. And I think, you know, you hope that that game five against Atlanta was a lesson and it's like, okay, we can't do that again. We cannot do that again. And I think you hope that that, 
they say it this time and they kind of mean it that they won't do that but you know it'll be interesting how it works without Embiid and then once he returns how the Celtics you know choose to attack that but I think for them attacking the basket is what they need to do you know if Embiid's not going to be in there in the lane blocking shots which he honestly is pretty good at the Celtics should attack you know the Sixers really don't have another big body that can do what Embiid does defensively you know offensively what he's going to do, what he's going to do, and he's going to get his points really no matter what you do. But I think that underrated is kind of what he can do defensively at the rim where he's really good at blocking shots. And so I think if he's not there, the Celtics have to attack the Sixers, you know, and not fall into the trap of shooting too many threes. Um, it's going to be curious to see what Joe Missoula's rotations look like. You know, Sam Hauser was kind of the first person or was part of that rotation in the Hawks series. Does that continue? Does Grant Williams get some more run? You know, it'll be interesting to see kind of what the Celtics do. Because if you look at game six, Grant Williams actually did play, or game six against the Hawks, against the Hawks, Grant Williams did play 17 minutes. Sam Hauser only played four minutes. So I think that that's going to be interesting to see. I think that you're going to see more Grant Williams against the Sixers. Um, and that's with or without Embiid. Because I think he presents kind of a defensive matchup issue that I think he can match up against Tobias Harris and kind of give him some issues. It's just the Sixers team, yes, they play well without Embiid. But it's just, I don't know, it's a team that I think that they're just kind of a collection of parts without Embiid, and Embiid kind of makes it work. You know, if you look at what the Nets did in Game 4 of their series, you know, some of the guys off the bench, you know, you got DeAnthony Melton, who I think historically has been a decent defender against Jason Tatum. Um, you know, you got Jaden McDaniels, or Jalen McDaniels, excuse me. Um, and so the starting lineup for the Sixers in Game 4, it was Harden, Maxie, Paul Reed, Harris, and P.J. Tucker. And it's like, look, that's the lineup they're rolling out against the Celtics. There's no reason that the Celtics should not be attacking the basket against the Sixers. You know, they need to be attacking the paint um, because I don't think the Sixers can stop them. You know, and honestly, like, look, when Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown have that driving mentality that they're going to get to the cup and they're going to score. There are very few teams in the league that can stop them from doing that. And I think it just that's just what it is with this team. It's like they got to have an attacking mindset. And it has to be the mindset the entire game because that's how you get, you know, those wide open threes that you attack the paint. And then you force the other team to defend against that. And, you know, that opens up, you know, open shots for other guys. And I think it's just frustrating that the Celtics don't do that at all times where it's almost like Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum tend to do that you know isolation thing which sometimes it works sometimes it doesn't but I think you know they got to continue to play the same way that they play in the first quarter in the first half I understand that it's easier said than done because it is the NBA and teams make adjustments and so it's not necessarily as easy as 
doing the same thing over and over because at some point there's going to be a change. But I think the Celtics need to keep that attacking mentality and whenever Embiid does return, make it more difficult. You know, see if they can make things difficult for them defensively. Um, but I think Embiid's status is certainly going to be interesting to monitor this series because I think it really does hinge if the Sixers have any chance of winning this series, he has to play. And if he doesn't play and he's out for the playoffs, there's no way that the Celtics, you know, should be comfortable. Or there's there's no way that they shouldn't lose this. There's no way that they shouldn't win this series. Like, I can't see the Sixers beating the Celtics if Embiid's not healthy. Um, so I think the Celtics just have to have that attacking mindset. You know, and have that mindset that we're going to take both in Boston. You know, we're not going to give them anything to feel good about. That the only thing they would have to feel good is Embiid coming back. But I think, you know, look for the Celtics to come out flying in this game. You know, I know some people are like, oh, well, you know, they gave the Sixers too much time to rest. But it appears that Embiid's injury is uh, far more serious than people thought. You know, a, a knee sprain or something like that, but Doc Rivers doesn't really seem to, you know, think that he's going to be available anytime soon. So, you know, we'll see if he plays, but um, I think the Celtics get the win tonight um, and have a chance to go up 2-0 on Wednesday. So the game one is tonight, game two Wednesday, game three on Friday, and then game four on Sunday. So by the next time we speak to you folks, four games will be uh, over with in the Celtics Sixers series, and then we'll see where they are from there. So we'll take a look at obviously uh, both Stanley Cup playoffs and NBA playoffs later in the podcast. So we're going to get to the Patriots. Obviously, there was a uh, draft that happened that you may or may not have uh, heard about this weekend. Obviously, you know, we talked at great length about the uh draft pick of Christian Christian Gonzalez uh, that the Patriots addressed, or the pick that the Patriots made. So, again, very pleased with that pick. I think really it was one of the best-case scenarios that I think you could have hoped for. The Patriots uh, get Gonzalez from Oregon. I think he's going to fit in really, really well and could be someone that could be a potential uh, rookie of the year candidate or defensive rookie of the year candidate. Um, if he fits in as well as we think. So the Patriots continued to address the defense with uh, Keon White out of Georgia Tech, a second-round pick. Uh, people seem to be pretty high on that, that uh, White is a guy that can be an ideal fit for the Patriots' versatile defensive scheme. This is um, reading some breakdowns on ESPN of the Patriots picks. Uh, you can also check that out for yourself. Um, but I think that similar to Dietrich Wise, you know, a guy that um, is going to play end but could, you know, slide in as a defensive tackle, but um, really good power, uh, power rusher, which I think the Patriots need all the depth they can get at defensive end. I do understand that people are like, oh, well, they have Judon, you know, but I think defensive end is always a position that you have to be thinking about because I think 
you know, someone was talking about this on a podcast, can't remember which one, but I feel like this day and age in the NFL, it's important to have multiple rushers that it's not the days of, okay, you have one guy in one end, one guy in the other, and that's how it goes. I think there's more rotation. So if you're adding a guy like White, who's, I think, a good athlete and a good fit, then it's like, absolutely, you take a chance um, on a guy like that. Patriots' third-round pick was Marte Mapu out of Sacramento State. Kind of a hybrid linebacker safety player. You know, reminds me a little bit of Kyle Duggar just in the hybrid safety linebacker, but I'd be curious to see, you know, what he kind of projects out to be, but really like his versatility, and I really like the Patriots picking three guys on defense that are versatile, and I think the Patriots have always liked guys who can be versatile uh, defensively, so really like those three picks. Patriots then address the interior offensive line in three of their next four picks with Jake Andrews, a center out of Troy, Sidney Sow, guard from Eastern Michigan, and Antonio Maffi from UCLA. So Patriots clearly trying to, you know, keep the depth on the offensive line, which I think is really important. Um, you know, Jake Andrews, no relation to David Andrews. You know, I think as a center, it's smart because, you know, Andrews is approaching kind of an older age. He did miss a lot of games last year, so I think it's always important just to keep depth on the offensive line. Um, and I also think, you know, this is a point I mentioned to someone that, you know, with Adrian Clem being the new offensive line coach, you know, I'm trying to phrase this in the right way, but I think that having a lot of guys, having a lot of depth with a new line coach is a really good thing because I think there could be a possibility that maybe there are some linemen that don't really work out. And so I think you want to have as much depth as you can. Um, but I think I really liked all three of those picks because I think they all have the ability to play kind of different positions on the line. Um, have some guys who are really good run blockers and pass blockers, um, which obviously is important. So I think, you know, it's the interior line of the offense is always an important place to have depth because guys go down. You know, you never know. I think that, yes, the Patriots did kind of have a, a decent kind of, at, at times, a decent consistency of kind of the same guys in the line. But I also think that they also had guys go down with injuries a couple times. You know, Andrews obviously missed time. You know, Trent Brown missed time. You know, Isaiah Wynn missed time. So I think... Again, it's never a bad thing to have depth on the offensive line. Uh, Patriots also addressed the kicker position with Chad Ryland out of Maryland as a really good leg. Um, and I think, you know, you want to have a backup plan in place for when, you know, Nick Folk decides to, to hang it up or whatever. But, you know, also Folk had issues kicking off last year. And so I think... Getting someone who has a good leg has the ability to, you know, kick it out of the end zone. The Patriots aren't having to, you know, do these short kickoffs, which, 
I think cost them a couple games last year. So I think it made sense to get um, a kicker because, you know, folks getting up there and, you know, I think that there needs to be, not like there needs to be a change, but I think, you know, the Patriots are at a point where they do need a kicker and do need a punter. And so it's like, you know, it's better, I think, to go in with guys who can compete than kind of going into the season being like, or going into like training camp in the preseason being like, oh, you know, you can sign anyone off the street. That doesn't really make any sense. You'd want to sign or you'd want to draft guys that you can develop. So Chad Ryland, fourth round pick, uh, Bryce Berenger was the sixth round pick, um, also has a really good leg. And I think set a career punting average or his career punting average was the best um, in Big Ten history, broke a 40-year-old record. So, you know, I think the Patriots are getting a pretty good kicker and punter, which they needed. So I think it makes sense. You know, I think the wide receiver position, the Patriots getting a couple in the sixth round, uh, Demario Douglas out of Liberty and uh, Kayshawn Booty out of LSU, who I may remember from... Uh, some college football games for LSU, but I think that certainly there were some kind of, you know, off-field issues. I don't know specifically, you know, I know he had an injury to his foot, but I think he's a guy that I think people were high on, you know, during the college football season. So I really like taking a chance on this guy. He's a guy who has really good explosiveness, um, and I think you know, kind of gives you that scoring threat from anywhere on the field. So I'm curious to see, you know, how he looks in training camp. Does he get into games? I think I really think that, you know, at that point in the draft, the Patriots were kind of just taking chances. And I think this is a guy that it's worth taking a chance on uh, because I think it's it wasn't necessarily the strongest receiver class. And so I think you know, the Patriots chose to address other positions, but if you're going to take a chance, I think that he's a guy you'd take a chance on. Um, then the Patriots drafting a couple cornerbacks in the sixth and seventh round, Amir Speed and Isaiah Bolden. So, look, I think based on last year's draft class, it leads me to believe that some of these guys, you know, will be able to contribute right away. I don't know which guys those are going to be, but. You know, really pretty pleased with the draft class. You know, I know that it's easy to say, oh, well, you know, they should have drafted these, you know, offensive players. But look, you have positions that you need to have depth at. There are positions that you needed to upgrade at in addition to, I guess, the quote-unquote skill positions. Is it the sexiest draft? No, but I think there are some guys in, in this class that could be real players. Um, so I think it's kind of silly to take the standpoint of there's no help for Mac Jones, the way that certain people are framing it, which is just completely false. I mean, the offensive line is a pretty good, pretty big part of the offense. Patriots took two receivers. So it's just, I don't know, it's just, it's nonsense. And I think it's just people that are trying to push this in narrative that Bill and Mac Jones don't get along. 
And so it's easy for people to say, oh, well, they didn't draft a receiver until the sixth round. They hate each other. Or, you know, Bill hates Mac Jones. It's complete nonsense. And it's just like, it's not really something I even want to address because I'm not even sure that it's real. Um, but anyway, I think it's an interesting draft class. And I think that there could be some guys that could contribute right away. So excited to see what they can do in the coming months and then in training camp and in the preseason. Um, so really happy with the class. I think for the most part, Patriots did pick up a couple of um, undrafted free agents. Uh, Malik Cunningham, former Louisville quarterback, may remind you a little bit of Lamar Jackson. That uh, was a pretty good, a very highly productive uh, dual threat quarterback for uh, the Cardinals. And I think gives the Patriots a you know, skill set that they don't have on the team in terms of a quarterback. Um, and so I think he could be pretty valuable um, on the practice squad or on the active roster, you know, as being a, you know, dual threat quarterback that, you know, can prepare the team's defense in practice for having to deal with the, you know, running quarterbacks the Lamar Jackson types, you know, the Josh Allen types that, you know, not only are good at making plays with their legs, but very good at improvising. So I think it's a smart addition. They also added a tight end and a linebacker. So that'll be interesting to see if the Patriots add any more. I didn't want to spend too much time on the Patriots as we'll get into more of that with our guests later this week. So I'm looking forward to that. So I think we're going to get over to the uh, Red Sox, who had a fairly disappointing series in Baltimore, losing two out of three, but then they came back winning two out of three against Cleveland this weekend, including a walk-off win on Saturday. And then Chris Sale pitched very well yesterday in kind of a rain-soaked game. Red Sox win 7-1. to one. And they are currently over 500 at the moment and tied with the New York Yankees for uh, last place, if you want to say that, or if you want to look at it in a positive way, tied for fourth. So, you know, I think, again, you're probably going to hear me talk the very same way that I kind of talked last week about the team, um, that I think it's kind of just going to be what it's going to be, that this is just the team that they're going to be, you know, that they're going to be a team that, you know, probably is going to be around 500 unless, you know, something drastically changes. You know, I think that clearly you have certain guys on your team that are playing really, really well, and that's excellent to see, but it's just kind of, you know, you don't really know what you're going to get day to day with this team. Um, in terms of what they can do offensively. Um, but I will tell you, like, the bright spots for Dugo has been excellent. You know, he's been their best player um, other than Devers. You know, Devers is not hitting hitting well in terms of his average. You know, he's hitting 232 on the season. But for Dugo has been, I think, their most consistent offensive player, uh, hitting 308, four home runs, 17 RBIs. You know, had that walk-off single on Saturday. But... It's good to see him playing at the level that he's playing at because I think the Red Sox really needed it from him. You know, I think that 
they kind of expected this from him, you know, when he came over in the Mookie Betts trade. I mean, who knows? It's kind of hard to know if he was going to be exactly that player, but I think now you're seeing it. You're now seeing him play at a really good, really good all-around level. You know, batting and fielding has been, I think, the Red Sox' most complete player, but you know, outside of Verdugo endeavors, it's hard to know. You know, Yoshida has had some good games lately, and I think he's starting to figure out um, American League pitching. Um, but I think that, you know, if we think about this team one month in, it's kind of what kind of what I would expect. You know, I think <clears throat> you would have liked their record to be a little bit better, but, you know, I think... This team has dealt with some injuries, unfortunately. You know, obviously losing Duval was a big was a big loss, and I think, you know, certain guys offensively not necessarily hitting the way that we would have liked. Um, but I think you are seeing some, you know, positive signs from someone like uh, Jaron Duran, who's come in, and I think have been really professional about... <clears throat> The way that he's playing, I think it's carrying through uh, to his play. You know, he's played 13 games, a home run, 10 RBIs, is hitting 396. So he's had a really good start to his to his season in Boston. So, you know, I think it's good to see from a standpoint of. You know, you can lose a really good hitter and player like Duval, but you know, you don't you're not losing too much of someone like Duran who can come in and hit pretty effectively, which it seems like he's done. Um, but I think What it comes down to with this team, and it kind of always will, um, is the pitching. And it's still kind of inconsistent. You know, you're not really getting consistent outings, you know, from Chris Sale and from, you know, Kluber. Kluber did pitch well his last outing. Um, and Sale obviously pitched really well yesterday, but you need consistency. You know, this is really kind of a team that, from their starters is begging for consistency. You know, the Red Sox have, from their pitching staff, 29 starts, five quality starts. You know, that can't happen. You know, if this team wants to be a contending team, you know, you can't have that. You know, you need to have more, you need to have more quality starts. You know, I think far too often you're seeing guys getting hit and lit up in the first couple innings and it kind of puts the team behind the eight ball. So, you know, you're hoping that, you know, Bayo can, you know, pitch a little bit better than what he's shown. Um, you know, there's some flashes there, uh, but I think, you know, losing Willock again to injury is tough. Um, and I think, you know, it's just hard to rely on all the, all the starting pitchers because, it just, you're not really seeing any consistency, and 
you know, that's kind of, I think, why the team is not as good record-wise as perhaps maybe they should be, you know, because Sales had, you know, bad outings throughout the season. He's had good ones, too. You know, clearly it was really good. You know, Hauk has been fairly solid. You know, he's probably been their most consistent starter, which kind of tells you a lot. So, you know, Sale and Kluber just need to be better. You know, I think that's really what it is because this is a team that's really, you know, putting a lot in their hands, which may not have been the smartest idea based on their performance so far. But, you know, it is what it is. And it's like they're kind of counting on both of those guys to be their, you know, one-two. And neither of them have really been consistent at any point this season. So, you know, here's hoping that that sale can start to be a little bit more consistent, but, you know, we saw him pitch really well in Tampa a couple weeks ago, and then he followed that up with his outing in Baltimore where, you know, it was bad and let his anger out. So it's like, you know, you don't know really what you're going to get from him. And if that's the case, and that's the case with Kluber, it's like, those are your top two starters. Like, again, it's, you know, it's, it's hard to have, you know, confidence in this team on a day-to-day basis because you don't know what kind of pitching they're going to get. So, you know, certainly it's great to see them getting some wins. You know, certainly fun to see them, you know, walking off and winning games in some of the fashions that they're winning games. But, you know, it's, I don't know, it's hard to expect really any type of consistency with this team to do open the four-game set uh, with Toronto this week and then have a three-game series in Philadelphia this weekend. So, you know, we'll see how things go for this team in the next week or so, but, you know, really not making any traction in the division. Believe it or not, Red Sox are already eight games out of first place with, you know, Tampa Bay playing so well at such a high level um, in the first month. But I think... You know, yeah, definitely some good, some feel-good things for this team with some guys performing well. But, you know, for them really to be taken seriously as a contender, the starting pitching, you know, needs to be way more consistent. So, you know, here's hoping that they can keep that going as they welcome in Toronto's, you know, four and a half games behind, four and a half games out of first, they're 18 and 10 on the season. So... It should be an interesting series. Take a look at the starting pitchers. Corey Kluber goes tonight. Tanner Houck, Nick Pavetta, and then Brian Bayo. <clears throat> Pitching all four games this week against the Blue Jays at Fenway. So we'll see how that series goes. So I think we'll move on quickly to talk Revolution return to baseball shortly or later in the podcast. Um, the Revolution and FC Cincinnati had a draw this weekend. Revs and Cincinnati both atop the Eastern Conference, and they both stayed there as they uh, drew or finished to a 1-1 tie. Um, Emmanuel Boateng scored the only goal for the Revs, who came back from um, a one nothing deficit. Georgi Petrovic saved a penalty kick in this game. Um, it's just wild to see this team just be so 
so unbelievably blessed with the great goaltending in the last couple of years. You know, Turner, how good he was. And then they go from Turner to Petrovic, who's might be better than that Turner, which is kind of crazy to say. But, you know, a good result for the team against another good team. The Reds also won in their U.S. Open Cup game this week, 2-1 over Hartford. I believe the goals were from... Goals were from Justin Rennix and Dave Romney in that game. So the Revs tied against Cincinnati, and, you know, things are really good for this Revs team. You know, it's been exciting. You know, I think the only tough part is uh, Henry Kessler had surgery recently, so it'll be a while until we'll hear from him. Um, but I think it's just been really fun to watch this team, um, watch this team play and watch this team play well with, you know, so many guys really playing at a high level and the Revs being able to get, you know, consistent goal scoring from the top of their lineup. You know, not only that, but they can get goals here and there from other guys as well. So, you know, very pleased with the start of this season. Uh, really could not have gone any better for this team that's first place in the East. So we'll take a look this week. The uh, Revs will play or no, next week that they play in the U.S. Open Cup. This week, the Revs will travel to Toronto to take on Toronto FC on Saturday at 7.30. So with the Revs tied for first, um, and actually are in first in the Eastern Conference because of their advantage in goal differential, Toronto FC currently in ninth place with 12 points. So should be an interesting matchup as the Revs go on the road and start to, start to go more on the road three of the or four of the next six games for the Revs or now actually even more than that five out of the next seven games for the Revs are away from home so we'll see how they do on the road Revs had a lot of home games previously so we'll see how they do with some road games Toronto FC um, Inter Miami Philadelphia Atlanta, some places the Reds will be going in the month of May. So I think it's probably going to do it for the Revs. I think we're going to move on, uh, touch on some... I think we might just touch on some NFL stuff. Uh, maybe just some stuff from the draft. Um, Max Duggan was picked by the Chargers in the seventh round as the former quarterback at TCU. Uh, Toledo's Dewan Johnson was Mr. Irrelevant this year. Was the, uh, I believe he was a cornerback. So, or defensive lineman, I should say. So, I don't know, kind of funny when that... That gets announced. Um, the Bills were signing or signing Latavius Murray for to a one-year deal, um, and reportedly the NFL is looking at uh, May 11th to release the uh, schedule. There also were a lot of trades uh, in this year's draft, so that was certainly interesting to see. You know, in terms of 
guys that I think are still of the faithful hole. Or, yeah, some of the um, undrafted players that I think could be available. Um, Ivan Pace Jr. out of Cincinnati. Um, Eli Ricks from Alabama. Andre Carter from Army. That was kind of surprising. Uh, there's some people I think had mocked him to the Patriots. Uh, Jared Clark out of Coastal Carolina. Just kind of some some names there. So be interesting to see if any of those guys get signed. Um, you know, certainly interesting to see the Patriots take a chance on a couple of those guys um, that they had signed to undraft or signed as undrafted free agents. Um, so I think move on quickly to Major League Baseball, then we'll get to uh, playoff thoughts from Stanley Cup playoffs and the NBA playoffs. Take a look at the MLB standings. We'll, or actually, I'll take a look at the notes quickly and then um, the standings. So Bryce Harper may potentially return tomorrow, uh, just 160 days from Tommy John surgery, which would be pretty wild. <clears throat> and Aaron Judge had suffered a, a hip strain last week, and the Yankees are still evaluating that, so not necessarily a good start for the Yankees this season as they are tied with the Red Sox currently at the bottom of the AL East. Tampa Bay is in first place, 23-6, and six, continuing their really hot start. Three and a half games against or ahead of ahead of second place Baltimore. Uh, Minnesota, 17-12, and 12, three and a half games ahead of Cleveland, so they're atop the Central. The Rangers still lead the West by two games over the Astros. The Braves lead the National League East, 18-9, three games over the Mets and the Marlins. The surprising Pittsburgh Pirates are in first place in the NL Central, 20-9 on the season, a game and a half ahead of the Brewers. And the Diamondbacks and the Dodgers tied atop the NL West at 16-13. and 13. So I think, move on, take a look at the NBA. Obviously had a couple games yesterday. The Heat and the Knicks, game one, the Heat taking it. Um, I think 101-91 was the final. 108-101 was the final score. Jimmy Butler had rolled his ankle late in the fourth quarter. Um, but the Heat hang on, so be interesting to see what his you know timetable is if he's going to play Game Two, which is tomorrow night in New York. So early lead for the Heat, um, and then the Warriors obviously beating the Kings in Sacramento yesterday in Game Seven. So Warriors and Lakers will face off in a second round series that starts tomorrow. Game two of Phoenix and Denver is tonight after the Celtics game. Denver leading one game to none, so 7.30 Celtics and Sixers at the Garden. Um, in that Kings-Warriors game yesterday, Steph Curry went off for 50 points, which is a all-time record for Game 7s. He was uh, unbelievable. You know, I think it's... I see him performing year after year. And it's almost like it 
kind of is like, it, it almost is like, it's so unbelievable that it stops being unbelievable. That it's like, oh, you looked up and oh, he's got 45 points. You know, it's like, it just, the way that he just makes the game look so easy is really something to behold. So we'll see how he does against LeBron and the Lakers. That's going to be a very interesting series. Um, and as reported, as I had said earlier, Doc Rivers says that uh, Joel Embiid is likely doubtful for game one. So we'll see whether he plays um, in the beginning of this series. So game one tonight, game two on Wednesday. So with the Stanley Cup playoffs, we'll take a quick look. So there was another game seven last night. The Seattle Kraken dispatching the Colorado Avalanche in seven games. So the Kraken win their first ever playoff series, beating the defending champs. I believe that they're the first expansion team to ever beat a defending champion in a playoff series. So really exciting stuff. Final game of the first round is tonight. The Rangers and the Devils, game seven, eight o'clock in uh, Newark, New Jersey. Devils, Rangers, going to be a really exciting game. I know that uh, our good friend Eric Bellier is uh, going to be excited for that one. So the second round series are almost all set. They're, they're, three of them are set, Florida and Toronto, obviously. Game one will be tomorrow night, Seattle and Dallas. We'll play game one tomorrow night as well. And then Edmonton and Vegas will play game one on Wednesday. And then winner tonight will play Carolina in the second round. So could be anyone's game in the NHL playoffs uh, with the Bruins being out. I mean, I really could see Carolina making a run. It wouldn't surprise me if Bruce Cassidy's Golden Knights, you know, made a run. I think that would be interesting to see, but I am excited to see uh, um, no, what was I going to say? Oh, yeah, that's what I was going to Yeah, uh, Connor McDavid, Jack Eichel will be matching up against each other in their second round series, Oilers, Golden Knights. So that's going to be a really exciting series. Very looking forward to seeing how that goes. Curious to see how Game 7 Game seven goes tonight, and then how that team does against Carolina. So that is probably going to do it for me. Um, yeah, probably will do it for me this week. Uh, we'll obviously be back with you guys later this week for Guest Friday as we go more in-depth on the Patriots draft class. Um, but yeah, until then, enjoy the rest of your week. And we'll talk to you Friday.